Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, but today, of course, it's an absolute delight to um, welcome back the Object series. Um, it's a Bloomsbury series, uh, Object Lessons, and um, it's just so nice to encounter books that are themselves beautiful objects. Um, every single one is interesting in a different way, and the diversity of topics is its own treat. Um, today, we have three very different subjects. We've got Evan Kinley with The Questionnaire. We've got Rebecca Tohos Dubrow with The Personal Stereo. We have Anna Leahy with The Tumor. The Questionnaire has been called marvelous, unexpected, dizzying, playful, smart, crisp, fleet, quaint, extraordinary, lucid, and flat-out alarming. <laughs> the personal stereo has been called delightful, loving, wise, exuberant, moving, genuine, even-handed, clear-eyed, fascinating, informative, elegant, and engaging. The tumor has been called lyrical, complex, clear, compelling, deeply personal, vital, convincing, beautifully written, intellectual, scientific, poetic, and a gem. Let's please give a warm round of applause to our three object lesson authors. Hi everybody, thanks for coming out. Um, so I'm going to read just um, a little bit from Questionnaire, which um, covers uh, various kinds of questionnaires throughout um, throughout history, or starting sort of in the um, uh, more or less in the mid 19th century. Um, I talk about um, psychological tests. I talk about um, quizzes in women's magazines. I talk about opinion polls. Um, and I talk about uh, BuzzFeed quizzes. Mm -hmm. But the, um, the section I'm going to read from is about um, psychological tests. Um, the uh, first half of it, which, um, which I'm not going to read, uh, deals with the Myers-Briggs uh, type indicator test. And then I'm going to pick up about halfway through the chapter um, just about um, the Oxford capacity analysis, which some of you may know is the, um, the personality test used by uh, the Church of Scientology. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, so I think that's all you need to know. The origins of the Oxford capacity analysis are disputed, but all accounts agree that it was developed in the early 1950s at the behest of Scientology founder L. Ron Hubbard. Hubbard was fascinated by intelligence and personality tests, which were then very much in the scientific mainstream. In 1950, his Dianetic Research Foundation ran a battery of tests, including the Minnesota multiphasic personality inventory, the California test of mental maturity, and the Johnson temperament analysis to try to establish the beneficial effects of Dianetic auditing. The results were inconclusive. Soon, Hubbard was pushing for Scientology to develop its own personality test. This may at first have been a matter of necessity. In the mid-1950s, publishers of personality tests began to require their customers to be accredited by the American Psychological Association thus cutting Hubbard off from access to the more legitimate scientific instruments. But it also allowed the church to shape the test to its own institutional requirements. Uh, this is a quote. Uh, the test we need must be of a highly precise nature, depending on opinion of an operator not one bit, Hubbard wrote in a 1950 internal memo to his staff entitled The Intensive Processing Procedure. Our tests must be administrable to a small group simultaneously, must be graded swiftly, must contain a high degree of arithmetical estimation, and must present to a layman the facts and figures he expects of a science. To this end, Hubbard commissioned Julia Lewis, a Scientologist with a graduate degree in psychology, to craft a test based on the Johnson temperament analysis, a personality inventory developed in 1941 by a marriage clinic in Los Angeles. It appears that Lewis simply copied or paraphrased most of the JTA's questions, diagnostic categories, and scoring apparatus, introducing a few bizarre errors in the process, like the possibility of receiving negative percentile scores, which is mathematically impossible. Lewis's test, which was copyrighted under her name in 1955, was called the American Personality Analysis. 
1959, the test was revised at Hubbard's instruction uh, by the British Scientologist Raymond Kemp and rebranded the Oxford Capacity Analysis in the apparent hope that the specious association with Oxford University would lend it an air of legitimacy outside of the United States. Uh, Scientology was trying to expand at this point. The Oxford Capacity Analysis has 200 questions. Some of them, do you browse through railway tables, directories, or dictionaries just for pleasure? Do you often sing or whistle just for the fun of it? Seem whimsical or irrelevant. Some are vaguely political, like, do you consider more money should be spent on social security? Do you consider the modern prisons without bars system doomed to failure? Others are obviously probing for signs of depression. Are you really happy unless you have a special reason? Do you often sit and think about death, sickness, pain, and sorrow? Do you sometimes wonder if anyone really cares about you? Would it take a definite effort on your part to consider the subject of suicide? And several seem to aim at ferreting out those with cult potential. Would you prefer to be in a position where you did not have the responsibilities of making decisions? Could you agree to strict discipline? Is it it's could you agree, comma, district discipline, which somehow is really great. Uh, would the idea of making a complete new start cause you much concern? <laughs> Ultimately, though, the responses given to these particular questions don't matter very much, as it appears to be impossible to achieve a good score on the OCA. In 1971, the British government commissioned an investigation into Scientology. As part of the inquiry, several British psychologists took the OCA in London and Edinburgh, answering the questions randomly and received remarkably similar profiles with uniformly low scores. They concluded that the test was rigged to produce a negative result. Moreover, they were appalled by the follow-up evaluations they were given after completing the tests, in which their supposed personality deficits were presented in the harshest possible light. Uh, the report reads, to report back a man's inadequacies to him in an automatic and personal fashion is unthinkable in responsible professional practice. To do so is potentially harmful. It is especially likely to be harmful to the nervous, introspective people who would be attracted by the leaflet in the first place. The prime aim of the procedure seems to be convince these people of their need for the corrective courses run by the Scientology organization, the psychologist concluded. Where the Myers-Briggs test flatters and protects those, the egos of those who take it, uh, revealing to them their special psychological gifts, the Oxford Capacity Analysis is designed to tear your personality down in order to rebuild. While I was researching this book, I read widely about the Oxford Capacity Analysis. As with all things Scientology, there's a tremendous amount of information about it on the internet. Not all of it trustworthy or unbiased. But I wanted to see it for myself, and as luck would have it, I live in the Scientology capital of the world, Los Angeles. Um, on a sweltering day in August, I walked into the gigantic blue Church of Scientology building on Sunset Boulevard, which is just down the road a little while there, and asked to take a personality test. I was led into an open-plan office with Dianetics posters on the walls and a smattering of people conversing in English and Spanish. The OCA itself, 200 questions that were roughly similar to what I had come across during my online research, took me a little under an hour to complete. After that, I was given a half-hour IQ test and a timed aptitude test, seemingly a combination intelligence and personality test which involved, among other tasks, writing my name in the left-hand margin of the page and circling it. This took me about five minutes. Once my tests were scored, a pleasant woman in her mid-fifties sat down with me and went over a line graph visualizing the results. The graph was divided into three layers. The top third was labeled desirable state, middle normal, and the bottom unacceptable state. My chart looked like the EKG of a fading heart patient. For the most part, my data points were near the very bottom of the scale with a couple of dramatic spikes indicating that I was active and aggressive. What this meant, my evaluator told me, was that I was a very unhappy man. According to my OCA results, I was extremely nervous, irresponsible, and impulsive. I lived in my own head, always thinking. I didn't trust people or get along with them, and I could be critical, cold-blooded, and even heartless. But, here's the good news, I had a high aptitude score and an above-average intelligence, which meant I was capable of a lot more. Did I want to keep going down the same road I had been traveling, or did I want to change my life? The OCA, I knew, was devised to produce troubling results of this sort. I also knew that the speech my evaluator had just delivered, one that she gave every appearance of improvising on the spot based on the specifics of my chart, was basically a stock monologue. In a memo from 1959, Hubbard provided a script for OCA evaluators to follow, which begins, now let's look at your personality. This is what you told us about yourself. Understand that this is not our opinion of you, but is a factual scientific analysis taken from your answers. It is your opinion. 
The opinion that follows is always unremittingly negative, and it is always expressed in terms that sound very much like the ones I heard from my evaluator. The emphasis is on the test neutrality and objectivity, and while the remedy is conveniently near at hand, just a couple of cubicles over in my case, where another Scientologist tried in vain to get me to sign up for a four-day Dianetics course on how to improve relationships with others, the diagnosis has come from the patient. Your opinion of you, then, is that you are a problem only Scientology can solve. The OCA is still used throughout the world as a recruiting tool for Scientology. Like almost everything about the church, it has been a source of controversy. In 2008, a Norwegian college student named Kaja Balo committed suicide after taking the OCA, inciting a public furor over the test demoralizing techniques in both Norway and France, where Balo was living at the time. French prosecutors were unable to establish a link between Balo's suicide and Scientology, but she has since become a kind of martyr to European anti-Scientology activists. I thought about Balo as I sat in the Scientology building on sunset, placidly listening to the verdict on my disaster of a personality. She clearly was one of those nervous, introspective people the British psychologists worried might be especially susceptible to Scientology propaganda. What would she have felt listening to a similar speech? Even if you are relatively mentally stable, you may find it distressing to hear someone you just met rattle off a list of your flaws, some of which, inevitably, you'll be inclined to agree with. For the record, I am nervous. I can be impulsive. It doesn't leave you feeling great about yourself. It's not meant to. In my case, I knew that my evaluator was following almost to the letter, a script that had been provided for her half a century ago and which, like the OCA itself, has remained essentially unchanged. But Bala probably didn't know that. Suicides rarely stem from a single external cause, and it can be argued that if the OCA didn't inf influence Bala to take her own life, something else would have. But what if, instead of accepting a flyer from a Scientologist on the streets of Nice, she had logged on, logged on to her computer and taken a Myers-Briggs test instead? Would it have told her maybe that she was an INFP, an introverted idealist? That she shared a personality type with such notable figures as William Blake, Virginia Woolf, that one might not have been so great, actually. Uh, John Lennon, John Lennon and Isabel Briggs Myers herself. Would she have felt that she belonged, was understood? She might not have felt any of this or learned anything about herself that would have made her wiser or happier, but there are worse things than a waste of time. done one other reading um, from my book with other object lessons authors and I find that the best way to do object lessons readings because it really highlights how we each took an object out there and the book is about the object out there but it's through our eyes and and our personality comes through in the book and so it, it's not memoir, it's not a personal book, but it's a way for readers to see how individual minds work through a topic and I think this kind of format really highlights that. And I'll also mention that uh, probably right now they're wrapping up, but there was a, this is a bi-coastal reading, so there's also a reading of three authors from Object Lessons tonight uh, in DC. Um, my, my topic is tumor, so there won't be quite as much laughing, I don't think. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to read from the opening, and then also uh, I'm going to sneak a poem in because I'm, I'm a poet in my other writing life. In fact, I'm also the editor of TAB, it's a literary journal, and this is our brand new print issue. We do something kooky every January for our print issue. I brought, I think, 10 copies, so I'll give away free copies, and you can look us up online, too. But I try to sneak poetry in everywhere as well. I'm going to read uh, the, the opening part here. And the opening chapter is the most memoirish. Uh, I, I chose Tumor because both of my parents died of cancer. And so I have a section in the first chapter for my mother, and then for my father, and then sort of from my own perspective, and then I, I get further into other ways of looking at tumors, including benign tumors that are not cancerous. So this is the chapter, Tumor in the Family, and I'll read part of the mother section. Early in 2012, my mother ended up in a hospital emergency room with symptoms indicative of a gallbladder attack. She had no history of gallbladder attacks, but had been suffering sporadic nausea, fullness, and general fatigue for several months. The physician who read the x-ray of her abdomen 
confirmed a possible problem with her gallbladder, but told her that it did not require immediate surgery. He told her to see a specialist right away. He was adamant about this referral in a way that got my mother's attention. In hindsight, we know that he had seen a shadow on her pancreas, an organ tucked near the intestines that produces a juice filled with digestive enzymes and several hormones, such as insulin. The word pancreas comes from the Greek meaning entirely flesh. That shadow on the pancreas on my mother's internal flesh turned out to be a tumor, entirely her own tissue, but somehow out of character, out of control. Based on that initial x-ray, the specialist discussed the probability of cancer. After additional imaging, he inserted a lighted tube down my mother's throat, passed a needle through the tube, and removed cells from the tumor for testing. My mother was officially diagnosed with pancreatic cancer on March 1st, when the results of the biopsy of the tumor on her pancreas revealed malignant cells. She was already sure of that diagnosis before then. She had talked with my sister and me about the online research she'd done, which has really changed the way we think about our medical problems. She gathered as much information as she could about what the tumor might be, and then she went over all her accounts, assets, and will. According to the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, a resource on which my mother, my sister, and I relied in gathering information early on in her illness, the chances of a patient surviving five years after the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer is just 8%. That's actually a recent uptick in survival, but it is still the lowest survival rate of any major cancer. The chance of surviving a full year from diagnosis is a pitiful 29%. It's even worse in the United Kingdom. When my mother read such numbers, she resigned herself to the likelihood that she would be dead within a year at the age of 72. And that's what happened. The future of pancreatic cancer looks even bleaker than the current state of the disease. Demographic populations change, the population in the United States is getting older, and age is the greatest risk factor for cancer. Treatment options evolve, usually in hopes of decreasing mortality rates, though the advances in treatment for pancreatic cancer seem meager. Incidence rates of this type of cancer are creeping upward, though no one is exactly sure why, and this cancer is often caught too late for existing treatment options to lower the death rate substantially. A study in the journal Cancer Research predicts that deaths from pancreatic cancer will increase, quote-unquote, dramatically, and that pancreatic cancer will become the second leading cause of cancer death before 2030, supplanting breast cancer. Breast cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer in women, accounting for 29% of all cancer diagnoses. Women in the United States have a one in eight chance of such a diagnosis. My, my mother had been treated for that cancer more than 10 years before her pancreatic cancer diagnosis. And there's some evidence now that those are linked genetically. My mother had been treated, uh, the tumor in her breast was relatively small and was removed surgically. After recovering quickly from that lumpectomy, she underwent treatment with radiation and then took a daily dose of the oral medication anastrozole to lower her chance of recurrence of breast cancer, since recurrence would have been more threatening than the initial tumor that had been removed and treated more drastic. Some cancers are more prevalent in the gen general population than others. The incidence rate for breast cancer is much higher than that of pancreatic cancer. The National Cancer Institute estimates a woman's lifetime risk of developing breast cancer at 12.3%, whereas a person's lifetime risk of developing pancreatic cancer is 1.5%. Many more women will face a breast cancer diagnosis than a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. The mortality rate, the clinical term for death rate, a reminder of what being mortal means, of breast cancer, however, is much lower because breast cancer is more likely to be detected early before the cancer has spread. And because treatment for this type of cancer is more effective. So as cancers go, breast cancer is among the most common and most people with breast cancer, 89%, survive at least five years. Overall, 78% of breast cancer patients survive 15 years or more. For, some in, for someone in my mother's circumstances, when she discovered the small lump, 
The five-year survival rate is 99%, almost everybody. While many people, about 41,000 annually in the United States, die of breast cancer, the odds are pretty good when it comes to cancer. A friend who walked in a Race for the Cure event to raise money for breast cancer research a few years ago said that there were too many women to fit in the traditional photograph of survivors. The high incidence rate combined with the increasingly successful treatment of breast cancer has grown to the point that it could no longer be framed. It's easy to look at the numbers and think that having a small tumor removed from one's breast is like having not had cancer at all. But one woman in every hundred doesn't survive her tumor. Women with advanced disease or women with recurrences after the battle had supposedly been won can't strap on their sneakers and run past the disease. I think I'll, I'll skip there. I'm trying to look for a happier part in this chapter. but. Uh, there's a great picture of Sally Ride. Everybody remembers Sally Ride. She also uh, died of pancreatic cancer, so the picture's happy, but uh, her, her story in the end is not. I'll skip to the end, and the whole book ends with two poems, one for my father and one for my mother. Each of them is called Gravity, and I'll read the one for my mother since I just talked about my mother. Gravity. A time comes when gravity is going to win, when the determination is made, when my mother is determined to be gravely ill, looking for one thing, finding a shadow nearby. The time is coming, time will tell, it always does. The cancer fills her up, her insides transform. Her belly expands, her extremities lose feeling. My mother's days dim, then intensify the day-to-day -day of weakening exhaustion. She falls with the weight of herself and her unsteady state, a state of unbeing. A moment arrives when my mother can no longer hold up, when gravity overcomes pressure, the lungs can't draw another breath, the memory I have of my mother glows like a white dwarf. She sometimes eludes my mind's eye, but even a worried stone dropped from my extended hand to my heart is so heavy it travels thousands of miles an hour. Hello. Um, thank you all for coming out. My book is called Personal Stereo and it's a cultural history of the Walkman. And, and I chose to write about the Walkman because I grew up in the 80s and 90s and had very fond memories of listening to my Walkman. Um, and then once I started to think about the topic and research it, I realized that it had other interesting aspects and that the Walkman was the first time that people in large numbers were carrying personal devices around with them everywhere they went, which has obvious resonance today. And um, I, I get really annoyed by seeing, by the way people use their devices today, but, and yet I had very fond memories of this device from the past, so I was interesting, interested in exploring that tension and contradiction. So I think I'm just gonna read my introduction. In 2009, the BBC News Magazine asked Scott Campbell, a 13-year-old boy, to temporarily trade his iPod for a Walkman and report his impressions. The occasion was the 30th anniversary of the Walkman's launch, and Campbell obliged. His dad had told him it was big, Campbell wrote, but I hadn't realized he meant that big. He went on to note that the device was heavy and cumbersome, and that when he wore it in public, he got strange looks and felt embarrassed. As for the sound, he noticed, quote, hissy backtrack and, quote, warbly noises, which he blames on the horrifically short battery life. <laughs> Although he found the experiment edifying, he was relieved to return to his iPod at the end of the week. Did my dad, Campbell wondered, really ever think this was a credible piece of technology? <laughs> when I was Scott Campbell's age, I thought my Walkman was an incredible piece of technology. When I think of it now, I think of joy. 
I would look forward to walks and long bus rides as opportunities to slip into a dreamy realm. I'd press the eject button, popping the player's door ajar, then carefully slide in a rectangular plastic cassette which had two holes like eyes. When I pressed play, the brown ribbon would start its steady motion, and the foam covered headphones would release melodies and voices into my ears. This was the 90s. I scoured the racks of the Salvation Army for maximally random t-shirts, commemorating the family reunions of strangers or glorifying the sports teams of neighboring towns. My bolder friends dyed their hair fuchsia and turquoise. Cassettes in heavy rotation included albums by Nirvana, The Pixies, and Dinosaur Jr. And of course, mixtapes, each with a meticulously curated sequence of my favorite songs from R.E.M.'s Superman to Beat Happening's Indian Summer, along with the odd Madonna or Michael Jackson hit. Sometimes the moments between songs were marked by a click or an awkwardly long pause or even a stray fragment of a laugh. I came to an anticipate these sounds in the same way that as one song neared its end, I would begin to hear the opening chords of the next in my head. Less fond, but still kind of endearing, are my memories of technological glitches. There was the dread that gripped me when the music started to slow, first almost imperceptibly, so I could cling to the hope that my fear was paranoia. But then the voices would stretch and deepen. Madonna would become a baritone. This meant my batteries were running out and I would have to endure the rest of my journey without a soundtrack. When the ribbon got caught and mangled in the player, I had to try to extricate it, smooth it out, and stick my finger in one of the holes in the cassette to roll it back up. I don't remember when I got my first when I first got my Walkman, nor do I have any single memory of an initial revelatory listening experience. To me, it was part of the technological furniture of my youth, along with VCRs and fax machines. Little did I know that when the Walkman was introduced in 1979, the year after I was born, it elicited rapture, but also alarm. I had no inkling that in the years that followed, it would be the subject of a monument in Austria, and would help garner its creator an honorary knighthood from the Queen of England but would also occasion calls for laws restricting its use and denunciations of it, partly in jest, I think, as a, quote, crime against humanity. <laughs> On reflection, you can see what the fuss was about. The Walkman, arguably the first mass personal device, introduced possibilities that we now take for granted, but that were largely unprecedented at the time. It gave people the power to enhance their experiences while tuning out their surroundings. It fueled the idea that we can and should always have access to our own personal choice of entertainment. It facilitated what we now call multitasking with all the efficiencies and distractions that term implies. And it entrenched the notion of electronic gadgets as accessories. In the 2010s, the height of cool may be a pair of warmy Parker glasses and a cracked iPhone. In the 1980s, it was jelly shoes, a scrunchie, and a Walkman. In the 21st century, as Scott Campbell's report attests, the Walkman seems hopelessly innocent, primitive, clunky. But back then, it aroused fears of an atomized public sphere. What if there were an accident, if somebody were hurt or in need of the directions, wrote one columnist. The man with the Walkman was morally absent. The columnist went on to lament that as a result of the Walkman, we have become a nerd to these insults to our sense of community. Our sense of community itself is diminished as a result. Since the Walkman kicked off these trends, technological change has both amplified them and ushered in very different ones. Now our devices can isolate us from the people around us, but they can also connect us to people farther away. Compared with the Walkman, their influence on our world has been much more sweeping, for good and for ill. The smartphone is a handmaiden to narcissists and activists bullies and refugees, procrastinators, and workaholics. And it has inspired a new round of cultural hand-wringing, this time expressed mostly in pixels rather than ink. Um, let me skip a bit. Okay. Nostalgia is the mood in which I write this book, and I suspect that a good number of the readers I am fortunate enough to attract will share it. But I do not wish to be the jerk who, exalting the past and resenting the present, manages to combine the two deeply unappealing traits of smugness and bitterness. I want to be skeptical of my nostalgia, to tease out the reasons for it that are strictly personal from the more rational observations about the Walkman's merits. There are certainly some specific features of the personal stereo that justify wistfulness, and I'll explore those in more detail in the third section of the book.
but I am cognizant that some of my nostalgia has little to do with the device itself. I wax sentimental for my Walkman, Super Mario Brothers, The Cure, and The Wonder Years because I encountered them when I was young, a time that was not necessarily better, but more intense. I can still feel the bliss of resting my head on the shoulder of my eighth grade boyfriend in the darkened movie theater as we watched Wayne's World. But the pain, while also acute, tends to fade. It no longer seems to remember how that boyfriend unceremoniously dumped me three weeks later. Past suffering, recalled with the philosoph philosophical equanimity of age, can even bring a kind of pleasure. Maybe I learned from it, maybe it sweetened the good times, and in any case, it was mine. But I think there's another, even more basic cause of nostalgia, not for, only for youth, but for the past in general especially for those of us who are predisposed to anxiety or who live in anxiety-provoking times. The essential source of anxiety is uncertainty. The past, whatever its shortcomings, has the virtue of having already happened, and we survived it. Um, so we definitely have time for questions. You all have questions either for us individually about our objects or for us globally as object lessons authors. Any questions? Because we have things that, that we thought about discussing, but we want to invite your questions first. Well, I was curious how you guys got involved with the series and like what your relationship was with the publisher and like you know what their ideas for you guys were or just kind of how it all came about. Um, yeah, I can start. Um, I heard about it actually from a friend, a uh, writer named Ariana Kelly, who wrote one of the earliest ones uh, about phone booths. Um, and I talked to her while she was writing it, and it seemed like an exciting series, really interesting. And I think it kind of crossbred in my mind with a vague interest in writing something about. I think actually initially it was online quizzes, and I thought maybe I would just write an article or something about. Uh, it was sort of a, a period when they were, uh, those things seemed even more um, uh, ubiquitous than they currently do. I can't remember exactly the year. Um, so, uh, yeah, in my case, it was that, and uh, just really interested in um, sort of what Anna was talking about before about the opportunity to write a kind of a longer uh, essay that would have this, you know, sort of have this topic as a. Um, uh, jumping off point to go in all kinds of different directions. So. Do you actually want to follow up on that since I know that? Yeah, yeah. So I found out about the series from Evan. <laughs> um, because we had lunch one day when Evan was working on his book and I immediately knew that I wanted to write one um, because I had, I had always wanted to write a book um, and this seems like a manageable first book. Um, Short and um, yeah, so. Did you have a different idea originally, or another idea that you were thinking of, or? As I recall it, it, it immediately came to mind that I knew I wanted to write about the walkman. Yeah. But um, yeah, so. So I I think I initially found out on Facebook that uh, object lessons existed as a thing. Somebody posted it or reposted it or something like that. And then um, I, I looked at the website, and Object Lessons actually does both articles and books. So the articles go into the Atlantic, and the books look like this. Uh, so I think I pitched an article that was rejected and then an article that was accepted, and it was about the medical port that um, people have put in to have chemotherapy. And um, I was really interested in how that was part of the body, but not part of the body, and what that meant to somebody. Uh, then I, I uh, corresponded with Allison Kinney, actually, who was an object lessons author, and she really encouraged me to propose a book. And the, the form is online. There's a quick, easy form online. And then if they like your idea enough in that round, they send you a template for a full-fledged book proposal, and then there's another review. And I think they're now getting lots and lots of interesting uh, proposals. They put out, Bloomsbury puts out uh, 
five or six titles, I think, twice a year, September and March. So there's a lot of opportunity, there's a lot of objects left, but there's a lot of objects now that are covered and, and they're really cool books. Any other questions? I also wanted to talk, and maybe you two can talk a little bit about um, voice in these books, because the, the series is very consciously trying to not be academic, to not be anti-academic, but to bridge that gap between the, the popular and the mainstream. And I found that the most rewarding thing for me when I was writing, to take away the jargon and, and not think like a professor. I'm a professor in my day job, but you know I'm a poet, so that's not jargony in the same way. So, so language and the idea of playing with my own voice, but talking about really serious stuff like statistics and how to make statistics accessible or personal was a, a great challenge for me, and I had a lot of fun with that. Um, yeah, that was a, an, an appeal of the series for me, too, this kind of um, border, borderline. I mean, the, the books are scholarly in some sense. I mean, they usually involve research, and they involve um, you know, some, some kind of argument, but um, often sort of historical. But uh, the fact that they could also encompass kind of personal experience, and the tone could be... Um, Sort of funny, and also just in, in my case, I mean, I just like the idea that I could um, range really widely and not sort of worry about ticking boxes and um, you know, kind of consulting all of the scholarship on you know some particular small um, aspect of the subject. Um, and actually, the, the the section I read is I think it's the only section in the book that is pers like a personal um, you know where I, and I in in retrospect I kind of wish I had done more, I mean, sort of like push myself to do more, not exactly reporting, but just kind of more kind of experiential stuff, because I found that really interesting, and it's something I'd, I'd love to try to develop in the future. Yeah, for me, there was a, an obvious way to incorporate my personal experience, and then I really liked that um, using this object as a springboard, you could integrate various genres as did. Um, a lot of archival research, reading old newspapers. I, interviewed, I did some journalism in that, or reporting in that I interviewed this guy who's still alive who um, claims to have been the true inventor of the Walkman. Um, and, and then just a lot of my own analysis and observations. Um, and in terms of voice, I just say that I think for me the biggest challenge was probably the third section of the book, which is called Nostalgia, and where I'm kind of comparing the Walkman to our personal devices today, which as I mentioned before, I'm not always a big fan of, so it was a challenge to not sound just totally curmudgeonly and cranky. <laughs> Any other questions? I would, might sound like a stupid question, might, might actually be a stupid question, but um, coming off of what you were just saying, do you consider, and I was thinking about this when you were reading, do you consider the Discman to be a separate object or the same? Is it like an inferior, different category or the same category? Different and definitely inferior. Oh. <laughs> it was just not a good product. I, I never owned a Discman. It, I mentioned it just in passing towards the end. It, um, it skipped. It was really big and cumbersome. I know the Walkman now seems that way too, but the Discman was bigger and more cumbersome. Than, um, and so are CDs. Who wants to carry around a bunch of CDs? I did that throughout college. Yeah, and they never sold as well. Yeah. So, that's my opinion. <laughs> and not the, the sales figures. That's not my opinion, that's, that's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> how, how many of you had Walkman? How many of you had this man? <laughs> so, anecdotally, the sales figures. <laughs> <laughs> Other questions? Um, so, what's your definition of an object? And I'm asking that because. 
to me, a tumor will not be an organ. That is something that is very much alive and growing. But at the same time, I can see why someone who suffers from cancer might want to see that tumor as an object, which is something that is exterior and maybe more static. Yes, I deal with that a lot in the book. I think of tumor as the object that is you, so that it, it is you and we treat it as if it's not us. And so where, where does the, the self end and the tumor begin? Because if we think about a tumor, it's cells doing what they're supposed to do really, really well. So, so tumors are actually cells at their best. If we were grading cells on their success, the tumor would be the most successful cells. And yet, that makes them the most dangerous cells. So I, I think that's very much part of the book, and there's a whole section that, that grapples with that. So that, I think that's a great question. And yes, I tried to play it both ways. But your question also opens up, you know, what is an object in this series? because I guess mine is the, the least clearly an object. Yours is personal stereos, most clearly an object. Questionnaire maybe kind of in between. Yeah. But um, then there's also silence in this series. And that to me is like, wait a minute, that's not an object. Password. Yeah. Right, right. So I, I think that they're expanding the idea of object. Um, and, and thinking about what these, these different things, if we treat them as objects, how does that help us think about them in our individual lives and in our culture? Do you want to say anything more about objectness? I'm kind of curious about um, like, what is it about like, digital quizzes in particular that really like, captured your interest? Yeah, um, well, so I was interested in the, the, the popularity of them, the fact that, um, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to put a date to this, um, maybe it's like 2015 or something, there was, it seemed like there was, um, everyone, was, everyone I knew was sharing BuzzFeed quizzes, like, uh, the, I think the most popular were things like, what city should you really live in, um, uh, and, um, yeah, I just found it, I mean, and it, it was an interesting phenomenon where um, these things were clearly everywhere for, for a, a period of time. Um, a lot of my friends seemed to be semi-ironically sharing them, right? Sort of, um, uh, I don't really believe in this or think it's, you know, good, but ha ha ha, here's what I got. Um, and so I was interested in that, in that kind of like uh, skepticism towards uh, questionnaires and um, and it, so what I found sort of in the research to sort of cut to the chase is that kind of combination of, of skepticism and disapproval but also um, almost like addiction to these kinds of things really um, carries all the way through the history um, tracing it back to um, these things called Victorian confession albums that were um, filled out uh, sort of as a, as a parlor game by um, uh, uh, the, the English uh, middle and upper middle classes, um, which you know had questions like, what are the what are the qualities you most admire in a man or in a woman or whatever? And um, there was a similar thing where you know these were extremely popular, best-selling books, um, but um, a lot of the answers that have survived are people clearly kind of mocking it and kind of like um, so. I, so I thought there's an interesting story there about kind of the the roots of social media, if you will, and, and kind of. Um, and also the way people um, uh, kind of um, present themselves or reveal themselves. Um, you know, also the idea that um, in some cases, uh, these quizzes, people were answering pretty personal questions. And I'm getting a little bit to privacy concerns. There are a lot of privacy concerns about whether BuzzFeed and other companies may be retaining that information, selling that information. Uh, there's a lot of paranoid, but, but, but actually quite plausible sort of scenarios in which, you know, there could be um, consequences from sharing all this personal information that people might not like. But, but the larger question for me, I think, and it really did start with the present, it started with the social media quizzes, and then I worked backwards to other forms, is um, under what circumstances do people, you know, answer questions about themselves, provide information about themselves to strangers? What makes you want to do that? What are the incentives for doing that? And what are the risks of doing that?
uh, given that there could be so much overwhelming information about each, but the books are smaller in scale, how did you organize for yourselves or, or set a frame, perhaps, to distill both the information, the history, but also personal narrative? Well, I decided pretty early on to make it chronological, which not not all the books are, um, but that was really helpful in terms of just um, providing a frame. So I start with the invention of the Walkman and, and then um, take it from there. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of, I, I think it was, easier to do research because Walkman um, is a trademark and I mean there's still a, t a ton out there but um, probably it was a little less overwhelming than say tumor <laughs> um, but um, yeah I, I could have kept researching more than I did but at a certain point I just thought I had um, plenty of, of really great funny quotes and um, and I just stopped and, and worked with what I had. Um, yeah. I, I think organization is a really interesting question and I think about it in relation to how the author's mind is working through the problem. So when I proposed this book, um, in order to, to think in, in a length that long, I just told myself, oh, it's going to be essays of 4,000 words, and then we'll just write an introduction. So I thought of it as essays, and then of course, once I started writing the book, it couldn't be essays, it's a book. And, and so I had to rethink things, and things fell away, other um, topics or, or angles came into the book, I, I reorganized, I thought about that question about the self and other, and, and whether the tumor is the self or something, you know, the enemy. Uh, to be battled, so I, I think that I allowed concepts to, to lead me, and then my goal at the end was to sneak the poetry in and see if the editors would let it stand, <laughs> and they did, and I couldn't believe it, and and I still can't believe that they let me, there's more poetry in there, and, and I talk about other people, other poets who have written about cancer, so that was my goal was sort of how much can I sneak in there, but with tumor it was really challenging because there's so much written about cancer, but there isn't all that much about what cancer means in terms of culture, particularly how that's related to individual lives, how the, the cultural and individual experience of cancer works. So that's, that I guess sort of answers your question. Um, I don't have that much to say. I mean, I, um, I like Becca's chronological, um, and I think it helped me, um, like Anna said, to sort of think of it as modular. I mean, there's seven chapters, and they're all... It, 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 was, um, it, it was a good sort of first book to write because the individual pieces seemed somewhat manageable, um, and I did sort of towards the end try to create as many links between chapters and callbacks to things as possible because I, I was starting to worry things started to feel too separate. But um, but I also knew it would be chronological with a certain a certain um, span of time I wanted to cover, basically starting in 1870 and ending now or you know when the book came out. And so I, I did try to think about being somewhat even in terms of the you know where I was checking in. I knew that I would be covering a lot of terrain really fast, but I didn't want to just suddenly skip from, say, the 1950s to the 80s or something. I wanted to, to have some, some evenness to that. Does the series have a, a rigid word count for each book? It, it has a word count that's not so rigid. What's the... 25,000 to 30,000, I think? Yeah, so 25 to 30,000 words. Although I spoke with one author who said he ignored the word count. It went way over and they didn't gripe about it. <laughs> I guess so, I guess so. But I, I took the word count very seriously and, and in the proposal that's why I divided it up with exactly how many words were going in which place and then it all fell apart. Um, we're almost out of time. I want to do something a little different and, and flip this back on you a little bit. So think about what object you would write a book about. 
got an object of mine? What's your object? Vinyl. Vinyl. Yeah, okay. Vinyl records. Vinyl records. Yeah, because I grew up with vinyl records and record players, and it's all come back now. It has. And my son's a musician, and so I've seen him sort of go through this transition from the Walkman to the disc to, you know, now he, like today, he was, he's, was recording something on an old Sony CD player. Like for some reason, I don't remember what, but I just thought this is like, this is awesome. <laughs> yeah, and I think vinyl is a good object because it had a history and now yes. it's reinvented itself. Yeah. So there are like two parts of it. Other objects you would write about. Postcards. Postcards. That's a great object. We based out on <laughs> postcards this time. And I was just, if you are interested in writing a book on postcards, um, I have a colleague who studies Japanese postcards. It's a whole thing, this postcard culture. And, and of course, it's gone, but it's not gone. Any other object, good objects out there? Beads. Lots of beads. Beads. But it was my first thing that I loved as a kid. I think that's a great object to write about. Yeah, you can take a broad subject and narrow it down, or you can take a narrow subject and broaden it out for these books, I think. Any other good objects out there? Okay, well, um, Chris Schaberg and Ian Bogost will uh, be awaiting these proposals for the next set of objects. Uh, thank you all for being here. We really appreciated it. And we're happy to sit around and answer more questions individually. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.